Good morning. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for being here with us this morning. Uh, as you know, we are Simi Church, and we are in the middle of a series, or it's a series that I'm doing called Jesus Worth Following. The idea is that we're going to go through the Gospel of Mark and just follow him wherever he went. You know, our mission is to love and live like Jesus. And if we're ever going to accomplish that mission, we're going to have to become like Jesus. Right. And today, I want to talk about what it means to be great in the eyes of Jesus. So there was this Harvard MBA grad. And he was in a small village, coastal village. And he was standing by the pier and he saw a ship come in, a very small boat with one fisherman on it. And he came in and he had a few uh, very nice yellowfin tunas in his boat. And he asked the fisherman, is that uh, all you caught today? And he said, yeah. And he said, well, how long did it take you to catch those fish? And the fisherman said, only just a couple hours. And the Harvard MBA business grad thought to himself, this fisherman, he doesn't know what he has. He doesn't know what he's capable of. And so he says to the man, he says, that only took you a couple hours. You should stay out all day. You should spend more time on the water and catch more fish. And the man said, well, why would I do that? And he said, because then you could take those fish and you could buy, catch more and more and more and then you could sell them and you could make more money. And after you make more money, you could buy more boats. The fisherman said, well, I, I catch what I need. I mean, I have enough to support myself, my family. I'm okay. And, and the, the MBA grad just couldn't understand that. The Harvard boy, he said, that, that doesn't make sense. He goes, what do you do with your, your spare time? He said, well, I, I sleep in. I uh, like to play with my kids. I spend time with my wife. I sip wine. I play guitar with my friends down in the village. I enjoy my life. And the MBA grad just said, you don't, you don't understand. You don't know what you have. He said, if you could fish longer and catch more fish, you'll make more money. And with that more money, you could reinvest into the business, see how this works, and you could buy more boats. And when you have more boats, you could catch even more fish. And then you could take that money, even more money, and put it back into the business. And maybe one day you could, you could own the cannery. And, and in that way, you would control the whole process from the moment the fish are caught to the moment they're sold in market. It would all be yours. It would be an empire. And the man said, well, what would I... I did that, I mean, how long would something like that take? 20, maybe 30 years? And the man said, okay. And he said, what, what would I do then? And he said, well, what you would do then is you would go public. You would, you would take your business and go public and offer stock to the public, and then you would be a multi-millionaire. And the man said, okay, but then what? And the guy said, well, then you would retire, move to a small fishing village, sleep in, spend time with your kids, enjoy your wife, play guitar with your friends. And it's interesting, but you know, the world has a view of greatness that's actually different than the view Jesus has of greatness. Today, we're going to talk about what Jesus thinks is great. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you for bringing us together. Speak to us through your word. Inspire us with the message and help us to walk out of here knowing what it means to be truly great. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We are in Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 30. It says, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. If you've been with us, you sort of know the backstory, but I'm going to be brief. Jesus had just left Mount Hermon where he was up on the mountaintop. He was transfigured. Three of the disciples saw this. They were amazed. They realized he was much more than just uh, another prophet, but that he was the Messiah. And even as the Messiah, he was something even more than human. He was divine. And they were, they were, you know, their minds were blown and they, they were struggling to understand, well, what did that mean? You see, for the past three years now, Jesus, is, Jesus had been publicly ministering throughout the land of Galilee. If you look at our map, it's right there on the top near the Sea of Galilee. He had been basically ministering in that area for three years now. And, and, and his ministry, it hit its climax, it hit its peak just a few months, in the last few months, where Jesus fed some 25,000 people, a massive public miracle. Then he went out of Galilee and he fed over there in the Decapolis some 20,000 people. And after he left there, he crossed the Sea of Galilee and he went up north off the map to the north into Caesarea Philippi where he was transfigured on, the Mount, on Mount Hermon and he revealed himself as something more than human but something incredibly divine. And the disciples were like, this is incredible. Could you imagine being a part of this ministry and just seeing miracle after miracle and these massive moments and experiences? just being with Jesus. But something else happened during this time. Jesus' message began to, to take a different turn. It began to become more serious. Just before this encounter, Jesus started talking about that he was going to die. And the disciples were struggling with that. They didn't understand that. No, you're the Messiah. You can't die. You're the one that's going to sit on the throne and rule forever. And Israel's going to be at peace and it's going to be incredible. And Jesus kept saying, no, I'm actually going to die. I'm going to resurrect, but I'm going to die. And they were having a hard time understanding that. It's easy for us. We, we know the story after it happened. We look back, we can explain the movie. But they were living it, and they didn't understand it. So after Mount Hermon, they leave, and they return to Galilee. And they're going to Capernaum, to Peter's house. And along the way, Jesus decides that this is now time to withdraw from the public eye and to begin focusing on just the disciples, on teaching just them. So they returned by the, by the back roads, the roundabout ways. They didn't take the main streets. Jesus didn't want to be seen. He didn't want to be known. He was wildly popular, and he withdraws with his disciples so that he can spend time teaching them because they're having a hard time with his teaching lately. It's beginning to cause them to struggle. They're confused. It's difficult. They don't understand it. And they're even afraid to talk about it. They don't know what to think. In this situation, along the way, Jesus actually tells them that he's going to be delivered. That word delivered is actually the word betrayed. So now he's adding that someone close to him, some, one of them is actually going to betray him. And you can imagine it's even more confusing. How could this be? No way. We wouldn't do that. What are you talking about, Jesus? And they were, they were having difficulty. You know, I've learned as a Christian that the older I get, the, more, the harder Jesus' teachings are. You would think it gets easier, but it doesn't. And sorry if you're a young Christian, and sorry if you're new, but I'm going to tell you right now, it actually gets more difficult. 
not because, I, not necessarily that I can't do what Jesus teaches, but because it's more the, the, the gravity of it, the magnitude of it, the importance of it becomes, becomes uh, it, it increases. And then the depth with which his teaching gets into your heart begins to become more profound. Yep. As a young Christian, I thought, gosh, if I could just get through a week without punching someone or getting drunk, I was doing great. And, you know, you, you learn pretty quickly that those things, those big obvious sins that, that seem to be, you know, insurmountable, they actually dry up and go away pretty quickly. It's surprising how quickly you can overcome some big things when you first become a follower of Jesus and you first get baptized and you first give your life to him. It's amazing how quickly some of those things fall off. And you thought, man, that would never happen. But they do. They go away. Right. But then after a year or two, a year or two, you get older, you have more responsibility. Now, Jesus' teachings are now talking about your heart and your passions and your motives and your desires. Now, let's try to fix that. Yeah. That's a lot harder. Yeah. It's more challenging. Yeah. You know, it takes maturity to follow Jesus. Right. And I think many of us have to embrace this growing up. Even me as a mature Christian, many years now, many, a couple decades, I feel like I still got to grow up. I got to have a bunch of birthdays. Because I'm, I'm, I'm giving in to things that I shouldn't be giving into. I'm, I'm wrestling with things that, that I shouldn't be wrestling with at this time in my life. But it just goes to say that maturity has to be high on my list of things to do. Because the teachings of Jesus become more challenging, more profound. They carry more weight in my life. And it requires maturity. I have to be able to, to have disagreements with people and still love them. I have to be able to see what someone does and how they worship or how they express themselves might be different than how I worship and how I express myself. And I have to make room. And, and it's so simple to go, no, we should all do the same thing. It all should be the same. And by the way, I'm the guy that determines the standard. So everybody do what I do. It's so easy. That's so immature, though. That's not how Jesus did it. You're going to see in this teaching, the next couple of teachings, we're going to go through them quickly, but you're going to see how important maturity is in being able to follow Jesus as things got more and more intense, as things got more and more serious. We are about six months from Jesus' death. The disciples don't know that. Jesus does. And he begins turning his attention onto them, onto us, and getting them ready for some big uh, uh, changes, some big experiences, some big difficulties, things that they could not imagine or foresee or even uh, comprehend happening. He's trying to get them ready. It takes maturity. Verse 33, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, this is probably Peter's house. He asked them, what are you arguing about on the road? What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet. Because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. <laughs> Big step in maturity here. Sitting down, <laughs> Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. This is not light conversation. This is not light teaching He's not rebuking them as far as I can tell. The Bible says that he, Jesus is using this time to teach, but this is, this is heavy duty. This is important. This is strong. You have to be the servant of all. 
You have to be the very last. It's easy to say, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll take a back seat. You know, okay, I'll be number two or maybe number three okay? or maybe number four. But to be the last, now that is a completely different concept. To be the very last, sure, I, I, I'll help someone. I like to go out of my way. I'll, I like to serve. But to be the servant of all is a completely different ask. You can see in Jesus' teaching how it's becoming more precise. It's becoming more direct. And it's requiring more maturity out of the disciples. But they're not there yet. They're still arguing over who's the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So they, they come back to Capernaum. They're in the house. They're chilling out after their chip trip up to Caesarea Philippi, after all the things that have happened. Maybe they're sitting around just talking about all the stuff that's happened. Man, that feeding of the 5,000, that was incredible. The feeding of the 4,000, I'm talking about men, much larger crowd that was there. You know, remember, oh man, we saw them transfigure on the mount there. It was amazing. You could just imagine the conversation and the stuff that's going on. And then Jesus goes, oh, hey, by the way, I heard you guys were, sound like you were arguing on the way here. What were you arguing about? It's like when you have kids and they're fighting. And then you come in there and what are we arguing about? And they, you know, all of a sudden everybody's quiet. The kids, you know, what are we going to say? It's all, it's all hush-hush all of a sudden. Well, that's what's happening here. They were embarrassed. They didn't want to tell him. They didn't want to open up about what was going on. But he knew. He knew that they were arguing about who was the greatest. Man, we get so self-important at times, don't we? It's so easy to, to, to want to be important. How did it start? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. Maybe James, John, and Peter were bragging about being on Mount Hermon. Well, we saw him transfigured. You guys are nothing. We're, we're better than you. Maybe it was the disciples arguing over the, if you remember from last week, the exorcism that they botched. Maybe they were still arguing. Well, I told you to do it this way. Well, I told you to do it that way. Maybe they were going, well, Jesus says he's going to die, so one of us is going to replace him. I'm better. You know, who's going to do that? I don't know what they were debating about specifically, but what I do know is that it was coming from this need to be self-important, this need for status. The world tells us that great men and great women have status. And Jesus said, let me get this little child in the room. As a rabbi, taking the posture of a rabbi, sitting on a chair, picking up this small child, holding him in his lap, and he says, if any of you wants to be great... You must become the least. In Jesus' economy, greatness is not found in worldly status. It's found in lowliness. You think about a child, and we're talking a small child. Let's leave teenagers out because that's a whole different, whole different conversation. This is a small child. But a small child, they have one thing that they do that they don't even know they do it. It's called, uh, Marty used this term once in one of his sermons, it's called creature consciousness. They are aware of their lack of status. 
A small child can be led anywhere they need to go. You can just go, hey, come on, we're going in here. We're going to go over there. And they just go. They don't, they don't have any pretense. They don't have any expectation. They don't have any understanding that, that, uh, you know, that maybe they could, could disagree with you. and challenge. They just don't do that. They just, they're lowly. No status. I'll go where you go. I'll do what you do. And they don't even know that they're doing it. It's that automatic. And Jesus is calling you and me to have that kind of posture. We know where we stand before God. I may say I am better than you, and you may think you're better than me, but when God walks into the room, it doesn't matter anymore. We are lowly. We are nothing. We are specks on a speck floating around in this massive universe. And the truly great person understands their lowliness. They embrace it. They accept it. They're aware of their true position. When I was in France, I got to visit there. I think I've shared this before. We go to the catacombs, one of my favorite places to go, and there is, under the city of Paris, catacombs, several miles worth. And in those catacombs, there's some six million uh, bones of some six million people. And they're just stacked up on the sides of the wall. Like, you just walk by them. You walk through them. And they're literally stacked up this high and as far back into these caverns as you can see. And I love going there because when you walk through there, within the first few uh, uh, you know, blocks that you're walking and you're just walking past bones, and these are people who lived, you know, I don't know, somewhere around a, before 1000 BC to about you know, 12, 1600 BC. And you walk past all these bones and you suddenly realize that I am nothing. There are six million people that lived and died and here are their bones. And I'm walking through them. And for me to think that I somehow have status among people is absurd. And I think that's what Jesus is challenging the disciples on. You're arguing about who's being great? Do you know how absurd that is? There, has been, there are 7 billion people on the earth today, and I, I don't know what they say the number is, but I think they say it's like 14 billion that have ever lived. Who are you? You could be the greatest among us, and you're just one of us. At some point, we're just bones. Church, I want to challenge you. It's a challenge that I'm trying to, trying to you know, take myself. But we've got to learn how to embrace lowliness. We've got to learn how to embrace our position before God. It starts there. If we're going to ever be great in the kingdom, in Jesus' in Jesus's economy, we're going to have to become lowly. Verse 38, teacher said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against me is for us. I, truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. So now John interrupts the conversation, and at first I thought, maybe John's changing the subject, and he's just got this off-the-wall you know, question he's asking or, or comment, and maybe that's true, but as I meditated on it more, I really think John was actually, I think, 
trying to show Jesus his lowliness. It was, it was one of those things, you know, like when you have a conversation with someone and you, let's say you're talking about um, exercise and you're, you're saying, yeah, I've been, I've been working out for three weeks. And then they go, oh yeah, I've been working out too for three weeks. There's a, there's a sense here where they want to um, get your approval. They want, you to, they want you to look at them and go, okay, yeah, you know, we're on the same team here. We're, we're, we're in agreement. I think that's what John was doing. I think he was trying to say, yeah, Jesus, we saw this guy. He was thinking he was someone important, and we went and told him to stop. See how lowly we are? I really do. It's the only thing to me that makes sense in the flow of the, of the text. I don't know if you remember, there was a, a skit. I forget what channel. It wasn't Saturday Night Live. Maybe it was. It was one of those skit shows, and there was a guy. He had a character where he was like a grown man, but he was a, little, he was a boy, and he'd go, look what I can do. Stuart, he would go, look what I can do. I think John had a Stuart moment. Look what I can do. Look at me, Jesus. We told this guy to stop because he thought he was someone. Look at me. Look what I can do. Now, Jesus has a really interesting response. He says, don't stop him. If he's not against us, he's for us. Look, anyone trying to do good in my name is not a threat. Why are you worried about this guy? Why are you trying to, to exclusivize? Is that a word? Exclus- Why are you trying to make, create exclusivity with the will of God? Right. Did you guys know that the power of God to work is not limited in the 12 disciples? It's not limited in Simi Church. It's not limited in you. You're not the only person on the planet who the Spirit of God can work through. But we have this tendency in our pride, in our greatness, to, to, to be exclusive. No, we, we have the patent on this one. We're the only ones allowed to exercise demons, and you can't do it. We tend to do that, don't we? We tend to pull, push other people out, good people, people who are trying to do right by God. Maybe they're wrong in some ways. Maybe they're not, they don't have everything on straight, but who does for crying out loud? Who of us is going to throw rocks in a glass house? I don't think Jesus was condoning doctrinal disunity. I don't think he was saying, some people will say this. They'll go, well, see, all roads lead to God. Doesn't matter what you believe because you all eventually get to God. Look at what Jesus said here. If you're not against this, you're with us. See, everybody, that's on, we're all on the same road eventually. I don't think that's, that's, a, that's a misuse of the text. That's not the context. That's not what Jesus was saying. He was not condoning disunity in theology or doctrine. It's important. We need to focus on it. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it and why what we believe is correct. That's all very, very important. But what he's condemning is this exclusivity. John, what a, who made you the arbiter of God's will? Who decided, when did you get appointed to be that guy? Now I'm asking you, when did you get appointed? One of the challenges of being a minister is trying to help resolve conflicts between fellow disciples. It's so frustrating (laughs) because we think we're more right than the next guy. We do. I fall into it. It's a weakness of human nature. Because I do it, it must be the right way to do it. 
And when we have a disagreement, it's so hard to be mature. It's so hard to realize our status, that we're really nothing to begin with, that we should be like children, we should be lowly, and we should be okay. That you may worship this way, I may worship that way. You may lead your group this way, I lead my group that way. You may decide to go here, and I decide to go there. And as long as we're not talking about a blatant sin, I think we got to be okay. I think what Jesus is telling us is you don't own the right. You don't have the patent to Christianity. Christianity is different with every generation. It's different in every culture. The core is the same, but it evolves. That's why it's so precious and why it's so amazing and why it is the greatest religious belief that's ever existed on history of, of, of earth. More people in history have become Christians because Christianity is not exclusive. You don't have to have a certain attire. You don't have to speak a certain language. You don't have to read in a certain way. You don't have to pray at certain times. It's absolutely open. And it can evolve and work within any culture. Yes, there are things that got to get eradicated over time. Yes, that's important. There are things that need to change. But how dare you and how dare me think we can put the patent on it and decide it's only us and we're the only ones that know what we're doing and no one else can do it this way. I think that's what John's mistake was. He thought he was being cool. He thought he was agreeing with Jesus. He was on the team. He was in the in crowd. So he had the right to stop someone else. And Jesus goes, you don't have that right. I'm God, not you. I'm working through him. And then he says, and this is a really important passage right here. And I think we really got to hear it because it's an interesting conclusion Jesus makes. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. What I hear Jesus telling you and me is greatness is not found in the exclusivity. I have the exclusive right to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not found in that. Greatness is found in servitude. What Jesus is calling you and me to do is to be the cup of water. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be the cup of refreshment to anyone in need. It's not the group you're in. It's what you do when you're in a group that matters. It's the service. It's the giving. It's the pouring out of yourself. That's where greatness is found in Jesus' economy. That's what Jesus calls great. I want you to look at this picture. This is Chen Si. He's in China. He's on the Najing Yangtze River Bridge. Since 2003, now as far as I know, Chen Si is not even a believer in Jesus. I, I, I don't even know what his faith is. I'm assuming he's probably Buddhist being in China or whatever they are in China. But since 2003, this man, married with a daughter, spends every weekend on the Yangtze Bridge because this is one of the most popular suicide sites in China. He has saved 300 people's lives. 
today. His wife is frustrated because he's gone every weekend. But here is a man, I don't even know if he knows who Jesus is. I mean, how out there can you get? And yet he is doing, he is serving in the manner of Jesus Christ. He is saving people's lives. And he doesn't just stop them from jumping. I mean, he literally, there are stories where he would literally grab people as they go over the rail, hold on to them. He's had five or six slip through his hands. But he's had 300 that he was able to pull down, holding onto their legs, ripping them back over, begging them not to do it. And then he follows up and he keeps in touch and he talks to him. And when he's not on the bridge, he leaves notes with his phone number to call him. There is no suicide prevention in China. If he had started this five years earlier, he would have been arrested for interfering with people committing suicide. Because in China, it is not an enlightened culture. It is not a Christian culture. They don't have the same value on life that we have. But here's a guy standing out in a dark world and he's slowly, very slowly, but beginning to start a little movement of people who are coming to help him. College students come and help him. There's other people now that stand on that bridge Monday through Friday to try to save lives. Is any of you going to wake up tomorrow morning and say, God, stop Chen C. He's not in our church. That's what we do when we get exclusive, when we think we own the right and we have the patent to what it means to be a Christian. And we forget that it's about being a servant. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe this is a door opening. Maybe a guy like him would be receptive to the message of Christ. And maybe if we can include him, if we can invite him in, if Christians can meet him and pull him in and appreciate what he does, maybe they'll be able to work together and find common ground and teach him better doctrine. And then he can be even better. Maybe at Simi Church, we can do the same thing. Maybe we can get ourselves out there in the society, out there in the community, out there helping people, serving people, being the cup of water to people, bringing that drink to them. And it opens the door. I think it sounds like mission love to me. It sounds like how Jesus lived and how Jesus loved. Greatness is not found in status, and it's not found in exclusivity. Verse 42. I'll be brief here. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. This is some strong language. Jesus is following up John's little interruption with. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter eternal life maimed than with two hands and go to hell, wherever the fire, uh, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die. The fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made? salty again have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other 
So Jesus is now warning the disciples, and he's warning you and me. And what he's saying is don't be a source, a stumbling block. Don't be a, a, someone who prevents someone from doing the will of God. Don't let your quirk, your idiosyncrasy, your little favorite thing you like to do, it's great, you're odd, I'm odd, it's great, we have our weirdness. Don't let that interfere with someone else's weirdness and their ability to serve and do the will of God. Should we stand when we sing? Should we sit when we sing? Should we pray on the side of the room? Should we pray at a quiet litter seats? Should we pass trays? Should we not? Should we get up and take communion? Does it any of it really matter? What we're trying to do is just connect to God. And we're going to try all kinds of things, church. It's going to happen. We're going to do lots of different things. Because I don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone. I have been a Christian. I can't remember the exact number now, but whatever. Let's say 20 24 years and 11 months. And in the last four weeks, we've turned the lights down in worship. For 24 years and 11 months, I sat in a row with the lights on and trays were passed and prayers were made from the pulpit and I didn't get up to pray with someone on the side of the room and I didn't get up on my own time to take communion. It was just all done for me. I think we could, we're due for a change. It doesn't mean we're going to put this in stone and now this is it for the next 25 years. We're going to try all kinds of things. But what I'm asking is for us to be flexible. Amen. Amen. To not cause someone else to stumble. Because you don't like this flavor or that style or this thing. Hey, we're going to get to everybody. We're going to try all kinds of things. But when it's not your time, let it be someone else's time. Amen? Amen. Don't be a stumbling block. That word stumble is in Greek. Scandalazini, I think. Sounds Italian. But it means to scandalize. But really the word is to prevent. Let's not prevent someone else from being able to do the will of God. That's really what he's saying. And then he goes on and he says, and by the way, if your foot, your hand, your eye, if they prevent you, get rid of them. What you do, what you look at, where you go, if those are hindering your walk with God, consider doing and looking and going to different places. Because they're not worth it. Nothing is worth losing your soul over. And Jesus uses this description of hell. The word in Greek is Gehenna. And it was a Greek word for the Valley of Hinnon, which is just to the south of the city of Jerusalem. And the Valley of Hinnon had a long history of human sacrifice. Pagan cultures would offer human sacrifices there. And when the era became Jewish and they stopped the sacrifices, they used it as a trash heap. They threw dead bodies there. They threw dead animals there. They threw human waste there, all their trash. And then they lit it on fire and it burned 24 hours a day. And the worms in there never stopped eating. And Jesus says, these things that are causing you to stumble and causing other people to stumble, if you can't get them out of the way, if you can't get work around them, if you can't overcome them, your fate is hell. Gehenna. Where the fire does not cease to burn. And the worms do not cease to eat. That is what is at stake. The disciples were having a hard time. 
They were having a hard time with the message of Jesus. They were struggling with it. They started arguing with themselves. And Jesus is like, guys, you have no idea what's at stake here. Do not cause each other to stumble. Do not cause somebody else to stumble. Do not cause yourself to stumble. It is not worth it. Greatness. It's not found in self-indulgence. The world says it is. The world says, hey, you got to have status. you got to be a member of the exclusive club. And you got to be able to do whatever you want to do when you want to do it. That's greatness in the world. But Jesus says, no, greatness is lowliness. Greatness is servitude. And greatness is holiness. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Living a holy life. A life set apart, dedicated to the will of God. Offering yourself as a sacrifice. Verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves. Be at peace with each other. He's referring to the salt that they would use when they would offer their sacrifices. And then he's also using the concept that salt can lose its saltiness. And, what he's, and what, really what, what he's saying is that you know, your holiness is the most important thing. It's precious. It's your pres- preservative, like salt. It's going to protect you. And when you offer your sacrifices, that's, it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, make sure you salt them. Make sure you protect them. Make sure you maintain your holiness. Greatness is not found in self-indulgence. It's found in holiness. We're all going to be tested. We're all going to be challenged. Hey, changing up our worship service, trying to find out different locations, worried about what this group's doing versus that group's doing, what's this guy over here doing versus what I'm doing over here. All of that stuff is super insignificant. There's bigger tests coming. Are you going to be ready for those? Last point I want to make, and I'm going to let you go, and it it ties in here. We live in a world that embraces status, exclusivity, and self-indulgence. It's what it's all about. The movies, the videos, the lifestyle, everything's constantly pushing that into our heads, into our kids' heads. we We are immersed in it. We have no idea even how much it's affecting us. And I, str- and I, I got to say, there have been disciples in our church that have begun to get caught up into those things. Well, if marijuana is legal, it can't be a sin then, right? Well, hey, I, I like to have drinks. Who's to judge me if I go too far? I'm, I, you know, you, don't, you can't judge me on that. We allow ourselves to watch shows that are laced with vulgarity, sexuality, pornography. And that's somehow okay. Where is your holiness? What are you doing? You're letting things into your life that are going to cause you to stumble. We get into ventures that we shouldn't get involved in. We get into relationships we shouldn't get wrapped up in. We, we constantly go down these roads that the world wants us to go down. And Jesus is saying, cut it off. That's not the road. This is the road. Holiness. This is what makes you great. If 
If you've been struggling, if you've been stumbling, please talk about it. Please come to me. Come to my wife. Get Gio and Karen on the phone. Call your trusted, righteous brother that you know and talk to him. Get open. Get it out. It is not worth it. Nothing matters more than making it to heaven. So Jesus' definition of greatness is very different than the world's definition of greatness. That Harvard MBA thought he knew something, but he was wrong. Let's be like that simple fisherman. Let's embrace lowliness. Let's embrace servitude. And let's embrace holiness. We're going to stand on up. I'm going to say a prayer. And we're going to close out and enjoy some fellowship. Don't forget, we're right back here next Sunday, 10.30 a.m. for worship. Father, thank you so much for this time to bring us together.